said, as we get to study our confession, and what we're really doing is kind of some pre-confession studies, we are working our way up to the study of our confession in September by looking at kind of a history of creeds and confessions. Our confession did not just drop out of the air uh, there in 1677 when it was written by Cox and Collins. But rather, there's a historical line of confessions, and before them, a historical line of creeds uh, that we have been uh, beginning, at least, to study. So we've been looking at various things regarding the formation of orthodoxy in the first and second and third centuries, and we're coming today to study what I'm calling orthodoxy's first symbols, orthodoxy's first symbols. And you might think, what, what is a symbol? We're going to talk about that. By the time we're done today, you will understand, I hope, what a symbol is. This is kind of an overview of where we want to go today. Uh, We want to compare creeds and confessions. If I was to ask you, what's the difference in a creed and a confession? Sometimes it's like, I knew until you asked me. So I know it when I see it. Uh, Like one of the things we're going to look at here is that... uh, I know a creed because it's really little, and I know a confession because it's really big, all right? That's kind of one, one generalized distinction. We're going to talk about the distinction of those two things. Um, we're going to talk about the historical convention or the standard of using creeds as symbols. It was a common practice in the early church to use creeds or doctrinal statements as symbols, and we're going to talk about what that, what that was like. Third, the context of the church's first symbols. Just like our confession has a context, so the rise of creeds in the early church has a context. It didn't just happen overnight as well. And then we're going to look finally at the concern of the early church in using creeds. Why? What were some things that were happening that were kind of encouraging them to the, the, the development and the use of 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 creeds, all right? So let's begin by looking at a comparison of creeds and confessions. Again, like I said, if I was to ask you the difference between the two, uh, you you could maybe kind of almost like feel the difference, but it'd be hard to articulate what that difference is. Maybe you could name a creed, and you could name a confession, but then when someone asks, okay, what's the real the real difference between these two. And we're looking at a comparison because we really want to highlight creeds in this particular study. And it's, it's, I think it's helpful to set it against confessions because we're more familiar with, with them. All right. There is, <clears throat> first, what I would say, a chronological difference between creeds and confessions. We could sum this up by saying early versus late. Creeds are those documents written by the church early in her life, and confessions are those documents written by the church later in her life. So, for the most part, creeds come from what we call the patristic era, or the first 400 or so years of the church. So, by the time we get to about 500 AD, the bulk of the church's creedal tradition is well-established. We do need to allow for some modification. Uh, For example, uh, there's a little clause that is added to one of the creeds early on 
uh, known as the filioque clause. Maybe you've heard that term before, the filioque clause. And the term filioque simply means and from the Son. So there was a question between the East and the West as to whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son or just from the Father. And originally in the Nicene Creed, it just said from the Father. But the Western Church added in somewhere around the 6th century uh, the, uh, the phrase and from the Son or filioque. That the, that, the, that the Spirit proceeded from both the Father and the Son. Um, you might also think about the Apostles' Creed itself. The Apostles' Creed does not reach its final form until somewhere around the 8th century. It has an early form in the 2nd century, known as the Roman Creed or the Roman symbol. It has a kind of a midway developing form in the 4th century, And there's a man by the name of Rufinus who writes a commentary on the Apostles' Creed. But it doesn't reach its final form until somewhere around the 8th century. But even though there are some modifications, just a few words here or there, maybe a phrase, for the most part, creeds are well established by the close of the patristic period. Confessions begin to develop later. There are some confessional statements throughout the medieval period, but principally, When you and I think of confessions, we think of the Reformation period of the church. Perhaps you're thinking of the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Savoy Declaration of Faith or our own Second London Confession of Faith. That's somewhat of a chronological difference between the two. There's a second difference, and that's what I would call a material difference. And that's simply that one is short and one is long, all right? It's not a big difference. But it is a difference nonetheless. So it's a rather straightforward distinction between creeds and confessions. Creeds usually have lines that can be counted, I would think, on fingers and toes. All right? um, you're going to need more fingers and more toes to count up our confession than you will a creed. For example, <clears throat> the uh, idea developed uh, in the history of the Apostles' Creed that the lines of the Apostles' Creed could be broken up neatly into 12 different lines. And they connected every line in the Creed back to the Apostles. And the kind of the, the legend develops with the Apostles' Creed that the Apostles' Creed actually came from the Apostles. So before they broke up in the first century and kind of went their way to preach the gospel to the different nations of the world, and Thomas went off to India... And, you know, Paul went off uh, to the to further west, <clears throat> eventually uh, making it all the way to Spain. Mark goes down to Egypt, and Peter stays there in the area of Jerusalem, but eventually makes his way to Rome. These are just different kinds of, um, <clears throat> I say they're part of the historical legends. Some of them have more substantial verification than others. But they connect a line each to one of the apostles. Who do you think wrote the first line in the Apostles' Creed, according to that legend? Matthew. Sounds good. Since the first gospel and all. You know. Who gets primacy among the apostles? Peter. Peter gets the first line, all right? So Peter's the one that believes in God the Father. <laughs> I believe in God the Father. That's from Peter. It's got to be from Peter, all right? And, uh, and Judas doesn't get a line, so we have to give a line to Matthias. And so, um, <clears throat> But there is this material difference. The Apostles' Creed itself is just over 100 words, just to kind of 
show the starkness in some of these creeds and confessions and the, the, the disconnect of their, their, their volume. The 39 Articles of the Church of England, around 4,500 words. Uh, our own Confession of Faith, around 12,000 words. Or if you want to get really excited, you might pick up the Second Helvetic Confession, somewhere around 35,000 words. And that's the Confession, all right? Um, you can understand now why uh, uh, creeds, uh, creeds, rather than confessions, are generally used, for example, in a liturgy for a church. All right? Let's all stand this morning. Let's recite the Helvetic, Second Helvetic Confession. Six hours later, we finish. All right? Probably not going to do that, all right? but we might do the Apostles of the Nicene Creed. So clearly there is a material difference. Well, this leads into a third distinction or difference, the functional difference. And I don't have kind of a, a neat little couplet here like early versus late or short versus long. The functional difference is simply involved in the idea of the liturgy of the church. All right? So creedal statements were often used, and the fact that they were short lended themselves to be able to be used in a liturgical setting of a church, or in particular, a baptismal setting. And you would ask the candidate, you know, uh, please recite what you believe, I believe in. Or uh, one writer, and uh, let me just go ahead and jump ahead to him, I don't know if we'll get that far or not. Um, I can find what he says here. Of course, I can't find it, but I know it's here somewhere. You probably see without my glasses. Here we go. Yeah. Um, Hippolytus, a guy named Apollos, you all know him, right? Uh, he's a bishop, an elder in Rome, somewhere around the third century. And in one of his, one of his works, he records this. It's a... Uh, it's an actual account of what they would have done at a baptism, all right? They would have had a candidate there, and they're asking him questions. And uh, it says in his writings, it says, When the person being baptized goes down into the water, he who baptizes him, putting his hand on him, shall say, Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And the person being baptized shall say, I believe. Then, holding his hand on his head, he shall baptize him once. And then he shall say, Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Virgin Mary, and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and was dead, and was buried, and rose again the third day, alive from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead? And when he says, I believe, he baptizes him again. Second baptism. We're going to get this guy really wet. And again... He shall say, Do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church, the resurrection of the body? And the person being baptized shall say, I believe. And then he is baptized a third time. And this would have been a baptism by immersion, and it would have been a triune baptism. All right? Three different times we're going to baptize this person. All right? Um, <clears throat> perhaps you've seen this practice used in some Eastern churches where they will baptize an infant, and they'll baptize the infant naked. And they will baptize the baby into this big pool of water three times. I've watched one of these before, and I thought, you know, if I was a mom at one of those things, I would be traumatized for weeks. They take this little fat, chubby baby that's all slick now and wet, and here's this priest, boom, 
Obviously, he's not asking the questions of the little baby because he's not going to get an answer. That's a whole other issue right there. But he baptizes that little chubby thing three times. And I'm thinking he's going to like whew, fly out of his hands. And uh, mother's heart is like beating the whole time and stuff. Matt, did you have a question? Say that a little louder. I'm sorry, this AC up here is... I would imagine that they would make some kind of argument that the three as a whole is one baptism. They're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just like we would take Matthew 28 in the Great Commission and say that this is the singular name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're just showing distinctions of being baptized in the name of each person. And uh, so I'm sure there's a longer, more weighty theological explanation that they would have for that, but they're probably considering one baptism, all kind of put, put together. So, um, <clears throat> so there is a little distinction there between the uh, idea of... Uh, the functional difference there in the two. A fourth issue, a, a distributive difference. And by distributive, what we mean here is universal versus local. Being conciliar documents, and you might think, what, is that, what does that even mean? A, a creed is a conciliar document in the sense that it was formulated and approved by a council. Now, we will, Lord willing, get to talk about the councils here next week or the, maybe in a few weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, the Council of Ephesus, and other councils. And at these councils, they either formulated a creedal statement or they um, <clears throat> affirmed a creedal statement from a previous, uh, a previous council. All right? So being conciliar documents... And these were all what we would call ecumenical councils, these early councils. They involved churches from all over uh, the Christian world, if you will, the East and the West. Creeds had a universal authority, and creeds had a universal appeal. Confessions, though, are different. Confessions have a local provenance. They are not speaking for the church worldwide. They're speaking for a particular group of Christian people. They're speaking perhaps for a denomination. They're speaking for uh, a localized, a more localized group. There is, fifthly, a substantial difference between the two. This is very similar to what we've just said. But substantially, as to the matter contained in them, the creeds consist of those matters of doctrine, namely things like Trinitarianism, Christology, pneumatology, brief statements on ecclesiology, they are common among all naming the name of Christ. These are all things we share in common with one another as, quote-unquote, Christians. Right? Um, <clears throat> confessions are a little different. Confessions point to finer distinctions and implications in doctrine that are held by smaller groups within the larger Christian framework. Confessions, in this sense, stand on creeds. Creeds serve somewhat as a foundation for confessional type documents. Um, they will often contain, that is confessions often contain creedal material, 
but they will, be, they will go beyond them in content and scope. I mean, just think about our own confession. Uh, we have an entire chapter on Scripture. We have an entire chapter on something like the doctrine of assurance. We have a chapter on the magistrate. We have very specified chapters on the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, we have uh, statements on uh, the place of the law and the gospel. These things go, uh, I don't want to say beyond the creeds in the sense that they have no connection to creeds whatsoever, but they are certainly more full statements, more explicit or specific statements than we find in the creeds. One final difference here that I want to bring out is that is it's an ecclesiastical difference or an ecclesial difference. We can frame this in the terms of being versus well-being, or sometimes you'll hear the phrase essay versus bene essay. All right? There is, to the creeds, there is an oughtness, or if we can make up a word, there's a mustness, not a mustiness, but a mustness to the creeds that is not necessarily present in the confessions. The creeds show us what a Christian must believe. The faith of the church has been, for example, Trinitarian from the start, and this must be the case. Without a Trinitarian confession, the church ceases to be the church. Now, this is not to say, and I'm not saying, that without the Nicene Creed, there is no church. I mean, if that were the case, then what would we do with the church for the first 300 years of the church? All right? So I'm not saying without the creed, there's no, there's no church. What I'm saying here is that without the faith that is expressed in the creed, there is no church. Without the faith that's expressed in the Nicene Creed, the church ceases to be Trinitarian. And ceasing to be Trinitarian, we are no longer the church of Jesus Christ. At least we are no longer the church of Jesus Christ, who is very God of very God. We'd be more like another church. You know, that other, the church of Jesus. Anyway, you, you know that point, all right? That is not the church. It's a, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not the church. And it's certainly not the church of the true Jesus Christ of the Bible. It is certainly also not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ of the creeds. Thus the very being or the essay of the church is found in the triune one to whom the creed points. Well, this is brought out powerfully by the Athanasian Creed. Now, Athanasian Creed is a creed that develops later in the church, probably 4th, 5th century, and we'll, we'll mention that a little bit later on in our study. We find the following opening line. Whosoever wants to be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except everyone, do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. Now, we're a group of Protestants, and hearing something like that may be a little troubling for a Protestant. I thought I just had to believe the Bible creed but the Bible type thing or whatever. Now you're telling me I got I to gotta believe what the Trinitarian affirmation of the Athanasian Creed is. Well, <clears throat> those of us who are not steeped in this creedal tradition, this may sound like strong language, perhaps even too strong. But creedal affirmation 
has been the position of the church going back to her earliest days, even, even the earliest days of our own Baptist tradition. Now, I'm going to borrow here from a creed or a confession. It's a, it's a confession that states itself as a creed, the Orthodox Creed of 1679. It is a general Baptist confession of faith written in the 17th century. And they include the text of the Nicene, Athanasian, and Apostles' creeds in their document. Listen to what they say. The three creeds, Nicene Creed, Athanasius, his creed, and the Apostles' Creed, as they are commonly called, ought thoroughly to be received and believed. For we believe they may be proved by most undoubted authority of Holy Scripture and are necessary to be understood of all Christians and to be instructed in the knowledge of them by the ministers of Christ according to the analogy of faith recorded in sacred scriptures upon which these creeds are grounded and catechistically opened and expounded in all Christian families for the edification of young and old which might be a means to prevent heresy and doctrine and practice these creedal these creeds containing all things in a brief manner that are necessary to be known fundamentally in order to our salvation, to which end they may be considered and better understood of all men. We have here printed them under their several titles. Now, I know you didn't have that in front of you, but let me just bring out several points. This orthodox creed of the General Baptists from the 17th century points to the creed's oughtness. They use the phrase that these creeds ought thoroughly to be received and believed. They're not suggesting that these are good things to receive and good things to believe. They're stating categorically they ought to be. It's a matter of mustness again. Secondly, they believe that these creeds are proved and grounded in Scripture. Third, it is necessary that, quote-unquote, all Christians understand their contents being instructed in them by ministers of Christ. They, they place the burden of instructing the people in this creedal tradition upon the pastors. They say you need to be engaged in instructing people in these creeds. They should, fourth, they should be taught to old and young by way of catechisms. This should be done in the home. We should be catechizing ourselves and our children in the contents of the creeds. Fifth, or maybe this is sixth. No, I think this is fifth. They will be a preventative against the rise of heresy. They will protect. Remember how we use that imagery of a garden over the last several weeks? The walls, right? Um, they're protecting from the rise of heresy. And finally, they teach the things, note this, necessary to our salvation. They teach the things necessary to our salvation. Well, so much for the Baptists being weak on the creeds. If we had time, we could take our own confession, and we'll bring this out over the course of the following years as we go through the chapters and paragraphs on our confession. There is a great 
uh, creedal debt, we could say, that our confession owes to the creedal tradition. Uh, there was a podcast done on theology in particular back several months ago that Jim Renahan did on uh, the, uh, the use of creeds in our own confession. And uh, that's, a, that's a worthy podcast to go and take a little bit of time to listen to. So further, the ch- for the church's well-being, not, the, not her being, but her well-being, she has found the need and profit of expressing her faith in more defined and specific terms throughout her history. And this expression is found in her confessional affirmations, which, though specific to a number of denominations, are often overlapping and quite similar. This, for example, is found in our own confessional tradition with the Second London. All right, so there are some some distinctions between creeds and confessions, hopefully trying to bring out uh, a a clearer picture of what a creed is, all right? Um, Chronological, material, functional, etc. Questions, comments? Yeah, Chris. You're assuming that there might be theological dangers that would arise in homeschooling? <laughs> after, uh, yeah, after about 25 years of homeschooling, I can assure you it's perfectly safe. There are never any theological problems. No, that's a great question, all right? Uh, so, for example, if we just think, for example, about the idea of mustness, all right? If you are connected with a group of people in homeschooling, which happens all the time, all right, and there is an unwillingness amongst that group I'm not saying you have to have a creed as your, in your documents or whatever, but you're having conversations. There's an unwillingness in part of your group to affirm something like the Nicene Creed. Now, it may be an unwillingness for several reasons. Maybe the unwillingness is just, I don't understand. Why, why does this matter? Uh, are you trying to impose a human document on me? Like they think they're going to you know, be dishonest to Christ by doing that. It may be they come from a tradition that doesn't have creeds, and so they're just uncomfortable. But it may be that they really have a theological conviction that is aberrant, that is actually heretical, and they refuse to submit themselves to a particular creed because they just don't believe that. So this is, for example, and we've encountered things over the years where... um, into the organizations that we've been a part of in our family, um, we've had Mormons join, all right? And we're sitting there going, yeah, uh, uh, no, all right? This is, not, this is not good because if you put yourself, just practically speaking, in a homeschool organization, it's very likely that one of the moms, maybe a dad, all right, comes in and they're going to be the teacher or instructor for a class. And your kid is going to be now in a class with a mom teaching your kid that's a Mormon because they say, well, we believe in Jesus too. So if the theological parameters for your homeschool group are too watered down and you can't, you can't bar the door to someone like that, then you probably need to think about how to beef, beef things up. Now, this, this also happens. This is one of those things you just have to kind of figure out what to do. 
Uh, it's not uncommon, especially these days, with the culture such a mess as it is, to find uh, Roman Catholic families that will be joining your CC group or something like that. We do CC. And, and that happens from time to time. And now, while that's not, in my book, as drastic and as out there as the Mormon mother teaching my daughter, um, if I can avoid that, I'm going to avoid that, right? Um, even, even closer to home, and this happens very often, is within Protestant circles, we have such a great influence of the word faith movement that you're going, to have, you're going to have families in your CC that are going to go to all kinds of churches here in the Metroplex that are, they're, they're just unsound churches. Now, to greater or lesser extents, those parents that are involved in your CC group may or may not even understand what their pastors are really saying. All right? So, um, to the extent that your group can affirm a creed, or a creedal-like statement, uh, it, it will serve as a great protection and corrective. Um, sometimes I've found in those kinds of organizations, it gets very difficult, but sometimes we just have to learn how to have courage and have tough conversations. And, and we have to be willing to, to come out and say, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with thus and so person, you know, and it may prompt a conversation with that person. It may prompt a conversation with the whatever they call the person in charge. But often in CC groups, uh, if you've been in those before, it's hard to find somebody that's actually in charge <laughs> because it's just a bunch of people coming together to try to school their kids, and so you've got to be, gotta be kind of careful there. Does that help at all? I don't know. Yes, well, so I mentioned earlier that we do see some confession, confessional-type statements in the medieval period that kind of go beyond the creeds. Uh, the, the creeds of the first few centuries, like the Nicene, Nicene Constantinopolitan, or the Athanasian Creed, or even what's going to be called the Chalcedonian Definition. Sometimes it's called the Chalcedonian Creed, but it's really more of a definition. Um, and uh, so we really almost have to get to the Reformation period to start to find that. I'm not saying necessarily after 1517, but that, that time frame, that period, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. And they, and they definitely get more developed as time goes on. And then we still find, we still find somewhat today um, something similar to confessionalism going on. Um, Christian mentioned the parachurch organizations. We often find today confessional-like statements made amongst parachurch organizations. Things like the Gospel Coalition. It has its own doctrinal statement. Or uh, several years ago, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood came out with the Danvers Statement, a statement on what it means to be a man versus a woman type thing. Um, you find the, uh, uh, what was it, a couple years back, 10 years ago now, maybe the Statement on Social Justice that came out. Um, and so I'm not saying thumbs up or thumbs down to any of these. I'm just saying that they happen you know, today, uh, but they're often in those parachurch-type groups. And you find, um, you find denominational groups today that are, um, I would say, quickly willing to amend their confessions. That's, that's troubling to me. 
when you would so quickly amend a document that's been around for 100 years, 400 years, 500 years. And uh, if you watched the last SBC, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention that just happened uh, several months ago, uh, you could have watched it online. I sat there and watched a, watched a lot of that. Uh, they amended the Baptist faith and message after like five minutes of debate. Anybody see that? And, and I, I don't necessarily, I, I, I think, I think I agreed with the amendment. The amendment It strengthened things. However, it was like, really? Five minutes? That's what you're going to give to this before you vote to amend it? I mean, uh, talk about a document that's pretty fluid. People complain because we don't, uh, we don't uh, modify or amend the Second London Confession of Faith. Well, we, we do in the sense that we, we can. Then there's the question of who's going who's gonna to change it, all right? Because we don't have, you know, this one group of people that hold the Second London Confession. And you, you changing it on your own and coming out with a new version of the Second London Confession is a bad idea. But it's happened. It's happened over the last 10, 20 years. We have several new versions of the Second London Confession. And so sometimes you have to ask a, a church when they're coming to join, like CBA or like a TARBC or whatever, uh, our associations, uh, we hold the Second London. You might want to ask the next question. Which version of the Second London do you hold? You know, uh, The new one that changes the doctrine of divine impassibility came out a few years ago called a faith to confess. Instead of God being without body parts or passions, God is without body parts or human passions. That's not what the original confession said. Anyway, that I digress. But um, So we want to be careful with amending things, you know, just on the fly. Welcome, Shiflet family. I saw you guys sneak in. You don't sneak in very well, do you? And so, yeah. This is Gina Shiflet and her kids. And her husband, David, is our, uh, what, one or two-week missionary to Cuba this week. And uh, David Shiflett and uh, Brandon Smith and Don Lindblad are down in Cuba. I think we talked about them Wednesday night. So it's good to have you guys with us today. And other questions on this matter? Okay. I can see we're not going to finish, but that's okay. All right. Let's look at the convention of using creeds as symbols. And hear what I mean by convention is, I mean, kind of the standard policy they use creeds as symbols. The word symbol that we have in English comes from a Greek term, symbolon, or symbolo, um, another form of the word. And <clears throat> the definitions for the word get quite extensive and confusing, but I'm just going to kind of pull out two here to kind of help us, I think, a little bit. This can be used to compare someone with something, right? And to see how well they kind of line up together. Another definition might be to place two things side by side to compare them and to verify them. Um, so comparing someone with something, placing two things side by side, for a comparison and verification. So let's just think about a dividing line, all right? This is supposed to represent something torn. It's the best line I could come up with, all right? On the left-hand side, we're going to put the creed, all right? And we have this creed, and it's formed, and it's fixed, like the Nicene Creed or the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. If 
we include the addition of the Filioque Clause later on, we get this creed. All right? For the most part, around 325 in the 4th century, it's, it's pretty stable. All right? And then we have this guy that comes along. Don't laugh at my art. I was pretty impressed by that. I found it on Google, and I copied and pasted. I didn't even draw it, because it would not look near that neat. So we place the guy alongside the creed, and we're trying to do what? We're trying to see how well they compare. All right? How, how well does this guy line up with the creed? The Mormon guy comes to your door, and you have a creedal understanding of the doctrine of Christ. Yesterday, um, the Hendersons moved into their new house, and at some point during the day, I, I found myself outside, and I came up to the door, and I, I opened up the door, and I found Dietrich, and I said, Hello, sir, we are here from a local church of Jesus Christ. Dietrich said, What do you believe about Jesus? He said, That's always my first question. All right? It probably kills the conversation. You know? and, uh, but if you're thinking with an orthodox understanding of Jesus, and you ask the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon that comes to your house, what do you say about Jesus? Well, the Mormons say things like, Jesus is Lucifer's brother. Jesus is a spirit child of God the Father from another planet. And, you know, pretty soon the conversation's what? Doors closed, you know, or whatever. Or you'd say something to him like, look, I'll listen to you for an hour if you'll listen to me for an hour first about your views of Jesus. That would probably close the conversation, too. But um, you know very quickly he doesn't align. Right? What we're looking for is some sense of alignment between the creed and the one making affirmation, some type of connection. This becomes a standard use of the creeds in the early church uh, for checking someone who wants to come and join your church, uh, checking someone who wants to come into town as a preacher or as a teacher. You might think, for example, back into the New Testament documents themselves, think about 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, someone comes to you and doesn't agree with the teaching. And here, specifically, it's the teaching about Christ. If someone comes in 1 John 4 and doesn't confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he is of the spirit of what? He's in the, of the spirit of Antichrist. All right. Don't receive such a one. Don't bring him into your home. Don't be hospitable to him. Don't welcome him as a teacher. All right? Creedal formulation, even in the first century, was already being used. Right? Um, questions about that? Comments? This is what we mean by a symbol. The creed becomes a symbol of the faith. And you are now compared to the symbol to see whether or not you're really in the faith. Right? Um, <clears throat> let's think about the context. The context of the church's first Symbols. Now, this, this definition we brought out last week uh, by Richard Muller, or Mueller, on the rule of faith, the regula fide, all right? And this was his definition for the rule of faith. He said, in the early church, the creedal expansion of the baptismal formula used to define the apostolic tradition of faith against the Gnostics or other groups opposing that which was considered orthodox. Okay, so let's, let's kind of pick apart this definition a little bit. Muller says here that the creed 
is an expansion of a baptismal formula. We'll go back to it again. It's an expansion of the baptismal formula, what you would have had someone say in a baptism, recite, or answer questions like Hippolytus that we mentioned just a few moments ago. Uh, he asked, do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in God the Son? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And they say, yes, yes, yes. You baptize them those, those three times, all right? So that's like a baptismal formula. The, the creeds take that baptismal formula and expand upon it. But the baptismal formula itself had been used to define what he calls here the apostolic tradition of faith. So let's kind of just show this in some kind of a diagram. Start at the bottom. Creeds being used as symbols for the faith. The creeds are kind of very clear, written out, agreed upon expressions of the rule of faith. The rule of faith is that expansion of that baptismal or liturgical form, and that finds its roots in the apostolic tradition. Now, the apostolic tradition, don't be worried about that phrase, the apostolic tradition would be found in the apostles' writings and in the apostles' teachings. Now, don't get worried. All right, you're thinking, oh, is this Catholic? No, I'm not saying that we have a separate stream of tradition. But early on in the church... If you were, say, for example, the church in Ephesus toward the close of the first century, you would probably have the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. You would have, by that point, probably a copy of the book of Revelation because you were one of the churches that received the copy of Revelation. You would have had a copy down. So you have uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You have uh, John's letter to the churches there in the Revelation. Uh, perhaps knowing John and being in Ephesus in western Turkey, you might have other writings by John. John, supposedly, church history tells us, was kind of located in that area of western Turkey. And eventually, by the time he gets to write the book of Revelation, he's where? He's on the isle called Patmos, which is right off the coast of, of Turkey there. So maybe you have first and second and third John. Maybe you have John itself, the Gospel of John, Maybe you have Revelation, you got Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and maybe you have a few other books. Remember we looked earlier, several weeks ago, we talked about how books were being shared. Remember the, 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 the church in Colossae? They were told in Colossians chapter 4, when you read this letter, give it to who? Give it to the Colossians or the Laodiceans and read their letter that I wrote to them. So there's a sharing of letters, all right? But the church in Ephesus, by the close of the first century, would not have had all 27 books. They would have had the books they had, and then they probably would have had teaching, oral teaching, by men that would have come through. And maybe they would have said, look, we've heard from Matthew, this, that, or the other, about the Lord Jesus, and we have teaching going on. It's not, at this point, at least for every church, they don't have it in written form. By the time we get all 27 books in the New Testament... We have the apostolic tradition. It's here inscripturated for us. But what I want to do with this is I want to go back beyond the apostolic tradition. A couple of weeks back, uh, <clears throat> I think it was Billy who brought up, and pray for Billy and Liam. They're both sick today. I think it's Liam's birthday. What a bad day to be sick. And... Um, they are at home. I think Billy mentioned something, and somebody else may have said something too. Um, 
there was a, uh, a slide that we had talking about Andres Kostenberger and uh, uh, Michael Kruger were summing up the teaching of John Baer. And he made the comment that uh, the teaching of the early church that's rooted in the New Testament. And somebody had made the comment, what about the Old Testament? Right? Uh, doesn't it go back further than that? And it, and it surely does. And so I want us to get behind the apostolic tradition in seeing a statement known as the Shema, as the primal creed of the church. You're familiar with the Shema, perhaps. The word Shema is simply Hebrew for hear. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now, the impulse to write creeds in the early church or to give verbal and eventually written expression to their faith or uh, what they believed was really part of the DNA of the, 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 the makeup of the people of God since the very beginning. In other words, the activity, the activity of the early church in expressing their faith verbally and in written form was a practice rooted in their own past, reaching way back to the days of the Old Testament and the nation of Israel herself. So hear this statement again from Deuteronomy 6, but I'm going to read Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We've already mentioned this text is referred to by the Jews as the Shema. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator and minister, wrote this regarding this particular statement. He said, Hear, specifically verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here is a brief summary of religion containing the first principles of faith and obedience. These Two verses, he writes, the Jews reckon one of the choicest portions of Scripture. They write it in their phylacteries. Remember the Jews, they would have these little boxes. They would tie them to their foreheads or tie them to their arms. And it, basically it was like, a, like an old form of, a, of an evangelical carrying around, you know, three-by-five memory note cards in their pocket. You ever, and you ever do that and have a little box of little memory cards and pull them out, all right? It's like an old phylactery, all right? And they would have these things, and they would think themselves not only obliged to say it at least twice a day, but very happy in being so obliged. They had a saying, the Jews, among them, Blessed are we who every morning and evening say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now you might look in your Bible to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Flip over there for just a moment. And uh, I'm going to read a passage out of Mark 12. We're going to be in verse, oh, we'll start in verse 28. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing he had answered them well. Ask him, ask Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, 
with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, think about that. If someone was to ask you what the greatest commandment was, you would probably say something like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not where Jesus starts, though. When Jesus expounds the greatest commandment, he starts first by laying out the groundwork of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Commenting on Jesus' citation of this verse, Henry says this, Our Savior prefixes to this command the great doctrinal truth upon which it is built. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. If we firmly believe this, it will follow that we will love him with all our hearts. He is, Henry says, Jehovah, who has all amiable perfections in himself. He is our God to whom we stand related and obliged. And therefore we ought to love him, to set our affections on him. Let out, let, let our desire be toward him and take delight in him. He is, and he is one Lord. Therefore he must be loved with our whole heart. He has the sole right to us and therefore ought to have the sole possession of us. If he be one, our hearts must be one with him. And since there is no God besides, no rival must be admitted with him upon the throne. This, according to historical theologian uh, Rasulov Pelikan, he says this is the primal creed of the church. You should hear this statement by Pelican. He says, behind and beneath all the primitive creeds of the apostolic and sub-apostolic era, sub-apostolic after, after the apostles, behind all those primitive creeds stands the primal creed and confession of the Christian church, the Shema. The Shema did not, of course, arise from within history, the history of Christendom at all. Rather, and note this, the history of Christendom may in a real sense be said to have arisen from it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, we read this. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. How do we know that? How can Paul say we know that? We know this to be true. Well, we might say the philosophers teach us this kind of thing. Some of the best philosophers do teach things about the singularity and the simplicity of God. Is that what Paul's saying? You've studied the philosophers? No, he's... How does Paul know? How does Paul have this, this certain knowledge of the oneness of God? For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, speaking as Christians, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. How does Paul know this? Well, just very quickly, note the parallelism of verse 6. 
One God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him. One Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we exist through him. It's like unmistakable parallelism, isn't it? Fairbairn and Reeves, in their book on the creeds and confessions, make this interesting statement. How can Paul combine in a single verse such restrictive language about God, the Father, and such tantalizingly similar language in describing Jesus? Paul knows there is only one God. Paul here is expressing the heart of a faithful Jew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he's one. But he's also expressing the heart of a faithful Christian. We believe there is one God. And now the church has to begin to understand Jesus in relation to the one God. This tantalizing, similar language. Jesus, in fact, and the Father, who borrow from Jesus himself in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are what? They're one. They're one. All right, well... 201. I'm busted. Sorry. Okay. If you have a last second stumping question, ask me later. Let's, uh, let's pray and be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for the time we've had to study. I pray, God, that this uh, whirlwind tour has been somewhat edifying. I pray that you would make this useful for us. I pray that you would help ground us in our affirmations of these glorious creedal truths of the Lord Jesus Christ that are simply expressing the apostolic tradition, which is simply expressing uh, the glorious truth of your self-revelation to us as the one and the only God. And we do bless you and praise you. And we desire this day to, to move forward to a time of corporate worship where we may come and worship you, the one true and living God. We bless you. We ask your assistance in grasping these wonderful truths and in, in having our hearts stirred to to love you and to respond to you in worship and praise and adoration. Bless you for this time that we have, and we pray it all, God, in the name of your Son, the blessed Lord Jesus.